a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> You know, Catherine, Danielle Miller started life as an English teacher and now she has taken her passion about teenage girls and seeing them in a positive light to set up enlightened education. Yeah, and that's not an area, in fact, that gets a lot of attention. There's this sort of assumptions about teenage girls because they're not perhaps as overtly badly behaved as boys. And I think the other thing about Danielle is how she's taken on a whole lot of other issues, including looking at areas around body image, suicide prevention, and even the state of girls' toilets in schools. It's unusual to hear people being positive about teenage girls. Yes, we know the boys behave worse, but somehow we're so down on the girls. You know, they're all bitchy and nasty and combative and bullying and all that rubbish. And she reframes that so beautifully, which we'll hear more about in a moment. Clearly a born teacher. Why did you leave mainstream education uh, to start Enlighten? Yes, look, I think I, I probably began my teaching career at about five, bossing around my little sister. Um, <laughs> that I sounds was, familiar. Yes, I was absolutely a girl with highly developed leadership skills and uh, much to impart to the world. And I did love teaching deeply, particularly teaching at my first high school, Evans High at Blacktown, which was a highly disadvantaged school and quite a culture shock after going to a Catholic girls' school. I did live in Blacktown, so the suburb itself wasn't a shock to me. Um, But the school certainly was not without its challenges. But it was the best thing I could have done for my teaching career because you got instant feedback from those young people about how engaging you were in the classroom. I realised, though, that despite the fact that I would spend hours planning my wonderful lessons on various texts, None of that really mattered if the students didn't feel safe, if they haven't, if they hadn't eaten that morning, if they were experiencing danger or trauma, and actually most of them were. Mm. So I very quickly became much more interested in student welfare um, and was fortunate enough, being a very young teacher in a challenging school, to be given plenty of opportunities to look at innovation because at a school like that, often the staff is quite young um, and the older staff tend to be a little more burnt out perhaps because it's hard work. Um, And so I just became really focused on the needs of young people that perhaps weren't being met in traditional classroom settings. And what was fascinating, Catherine, was that initially at least, students that were mostly identified as being at risk were boys because boys explode. They act out, we notice that. And um, so I was working with young boys for many years, but then I sort of started to think about their sisters that were in those very same homes They were still doing very well academically. They were still doing very well in terms of leadership positions in this school and rarely acted out. But I knew there must have been more more to that than meets the eye. And so I didn't have to poke too hard to realise that girls tend to implode rather than explode. A lot of those girls were engaging in self-harm. They were quite anxious. A lot of them were dealing um, with trauma. And I became really focused on how I could work with young women in particular. How did you realise that? Did they confide in you? Did you ask them? Yeah, they did, Jane. And I think if you build up a relationship of trust with young people, they will talk to you and open up if you ask the right questions. 
sometimes it's very hard to know when to ask those questions, as I said, because they may not be um, overtly demonstrating how tough they are doing things. And I think that's a lesson for all women. I think we're very good at putting on a don't worry about me facade. Mm -hmm. Um, We're very good at looking as if we are under control and we're managing when we might not be at all. So it was through intimate conversations and connections with girls and some of them were dealing with extremely difficult lives. I remember one young girl that I spoke to disclosed to me that her dad was out from jail and had committed an armed robbery and was held up in the house with his partner who had sexually assaulted her and she hadn't showered for weeks because she was scared to get changed. Now, these were the things this young girl was experiencing at home, yet she was turning up to school every day. Mm. She was very quietly sitting in class and she was doing as she was told. So it was a big eye-opener to me that we needed to do more for young women Um, and I wanted to create, I guess, the ideal day for young women, the um, ideal conversation and give them the toolbox that I felt they most needed. Mm. Did you feel that at that time they were being neglected and and, and almost ignored because yes. if you're not causing trouble, then no one pays attention. Yes, and if you're doing well academically, then you don't mm. get noticed either because whether we like it or not, schools do care about the whole child deeply. But at the end of the day, academic performance matters and marks matter. And so if a young person's getting A's, you're not as likely to have those conversations about are you actually okay? Um, and it was actually when I did my MBA. So I went back to university and did my MBA, which seems like a strange choice as a teacher, but I was really interested. English- teacher too. I was, yes. but I was really <laughs> interested. MBA English teacher, okay. Yeah, well, look, I was really interested in the fact that I had been asked more and more to design programs around entrepreneurialism for young people. I think because um, the managers could see that I was an innovative person and I was entrepreneurial myself. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be preparing young people for the world of work, what does that actually look like? What skills are desired? Um, and it was while doing that that I had the idea of setting up my own social enterprise in Lighten. When did you actually set that up? Don't oh, I think it must be about 13 years ago now. And at the time it was madness, Catherine, because <laughs> no one was worried about girls. We are now deeply, perhaps overly worried and focused on young women. But no one was worried. And in fact, when I would ring schools and say, look, I'd really like to work with your girls, they'd say, but our girls are fine. You know, what are you doing? Do you do anything for the boys? And I'd say, well, boys do need support. And actually, I do now have a boys program. But at the time, I really wanted to raise awareness in Australia about what young women were experiencing so that we could see them as more than just the facade that they were putting on. Um, And also give those girls the skills that I thought they needed to deconstruct a culture that I could see didn't like them very much. And I knew they had to be able to talk back to that and they weren't always being taught how to talk back in schools. Yeah, there's so many um, almost cliches, I suppose, about teenage girls. And yeah. uh, I hear a lot from women in the business world, but a lot of the same things. You know, women uh, stab each other in the back. Yes. They're nastier. Uh, they're Bitchy, they're queen bees. Yeah. They're their own and worst enemy. Own worst enemies. All of this. All red, fl- red flag for me, yeah. that one. Uh, and I always say to them, wow, I see so much poor behaviour from men in workplaces. Yes. Are you saying they're worse? And there's almost this idea they are because we hold them to such high standards. That starts quite early, doesn't it? It does. And we also hold them to different standards. So the number of times that educators have said to me, look, you know, the girls, when they fight, they ostracise each other and they socially exclude each other. 
and that's true and it's damaging, but then they'll qualify that by saying something that I always find really alarming. They'll say, you know, the boys, they just punch each other up and then it's all over and done with. And I think why do we glorify violence and why are we then not surprised that those same men, when they're in relationships, sometimes think that the way to resolve them is through using anger or their fists? So all of us, male and female, struggle during adolescence. We are all equally as wired to be impulsive during that time. We are all equally as subjected um, to presentations of femininity and masculinity that are really challenging. Our bodies are changing. They, you know, We feel like they're revolting on us. All of a sudden there's pubes, there's pimples, there's all these things that weren't there before that can be very confronting. And I do think we need to give them concrete skills rather than judgment and shaming them. Why are you such a champion for teenage girls? Why the empathy that you clearly have yeah. for these young women? Where do you think that comes from? Oh, gosh, Jane, that's such a good question because every time I think about that, I get a bit teary as I am now. I definitely do very, um, I am definitely teen girl. Possibly, I suppose, during our childhood, we either become like our parents or we become the parent we wish we had. Mm. And I don't know that I necessarily had strong, supportive parents as a teenage girl. I got a lot of my personal support through my friends who were, like me, equally in challenging homes and we were a pretty dysfunctional and um, challenging lot in many ways. And I think I have always had great empathy because I understand and still feel the pain of what it can be like. Um, to be an adolescent girl and feel that you don't quite fit in. And, you know, at the risk of quoting, I think it's Britney Spears, not <laughs> not a girl but not yet a woman, you know, yeah, there's that yeah. in-between stage where you still want to be loved, you want to be nurtured, but you want to be independent and you want to be taken seriously. And it's the push and pull of that that I find really captivating and really interesting. It is a, such a formative time in every yeah. sense, isn't it? And I was only thinking people often say to me, when when did you become so strongly feminist? Not in utero, I always answer. <laughs> However, yes. not too long after, but actually it was during my teen years. Same. I remember mm. feeling incredibly intensely aware Same. that young men my age, my peers, were being treated differently. Yeah. I didn't matter as much. And for me, that's where I found my family was through the writing of feminist women. That was my sisterhood. So I always say when people say, you know, finding role models for their daughters, they don't even have to actually be real life role models. You can find your role models through work, through literature. And for me, it was going to the library and reading incredible stories and incredible narratives and reading books like The Beauty Myth and sort of discovering feminism that really opened my eyes up to a whole world of females who had felt the same sense of unfairness that I was feeling but had moved beyond that and turned their critical gaze outward rather than inward and on their peers. And that's what I really um, love encouraging young girls to to do as well because I think once you see what we all see um, as women, you cannot unsee it. Mm. And there's so much power in that, being able to perceive the messages that you get. You can't make them go away. And I don't want to put anyone's daughter in a tower. I don't want to exclude them from the world or exclude them from the cultural goods that excite them, but at least equip them to know how to make sense of that and deconstruct it. And so it's about teaching girls how to think, not what to think. I always remember 
reading Jane Eyre probably as a teenager yeah. and there's that line in that where she says to Mr Rochester when they first have that weird meeting in front of the fireplace after she's frightened his horse um, and she says something along the lines of just because I'm poor and little and plain uh, doesn't mean I'm not fully as human as you are. Yeah. And that line just hit me between the eyes when I was a teenager and I thought, that's right, we're not treated as being as fully as human as the boys. And they do take up so much more space. Yes. Um, in, in classrooms especially, yeah. they sprawl all over the desk. Um, and, and that was interesting. And looking, you know, think considering talking literature, being an English teacher in yeah. a high school, um, particularly, I don't know if this is still the case now, but back then, particularly in government schools, the students didn't buy their own books. We had sets of books and, and they were nearly all books designed around boys' narratives because we knew that the boys would be more likely to complaining class. So the girls didn't often even have strong female role models in the literature that I was asked to present to them. I think that's still the case. There's yeah. still a view that girls will read about male protagonists but yes. boys won't read about female protagonists. Yes. Hence had, you know, J.K. Rowling called uh, the the Potter books Hermione Granger and the Philosopher's yes. Stone. Um I'm sure her publisher would have said to her, can you make it about the boy because then it'll sell to everyone. This is a real problem that we are grooming still girls to pay attention to boys and we are actively, um, we're undermining the ability of boys to empathise with girls. We don't like it. It frightens us. Yeah, and yet I find that boys actually, teenage boys are very empathetic and they are very interested in the experience of the other and they are very interested, just as girls are, in being seen as whole people, um, as somebody's not not just bodies, not just muscles. Um, And, you know, with our boys program too, I find that the teenage boys just look at my male presenter because just as I think girls need strong female role models, I think boys need strong male role models. Mm. So I have male presenters who deliver that. But, you know, they look at him with just saucer eyes. They just love him because he's so honest um, about the dichotomy of wanting to be seen as strong and in control but also wanting to be creative, wanting to be soft, wanting to be gentle, wanting to be loved. They're human emotions. Polly always used to say, this is my daughter who is a yes. teacher and who Danielle knows, used to always point out that she said, they're always saying they want more male teachers in schools for the boys. But she said, you know who an adolescent boy will confide in? A young female teacher. Mm. If the, a girl, he gets dropped by his girlfriend, he doesn't say anything to his friends. She does. She mm. cries on the girl's shoulders. Yes. They all comfort her. She's got a support group. But he pretends he doesn't care. You know, the person he comes to quietly when no one else is around, the young female teacher, because he's allowed to show his softer emotions yep. in front of a woman, but he can't do it in front of other Or he men. explodes. So I yeah. remember one day in high school I had a... a gorgeous teen boy who I had taught from, he was about 14, he was just a most lovely kid and he walked in about five minutes late and jokingly I said to him, nice of you to turn up, mate, you know, and usually he would have found that quite amusing and he sort of said, get fucked and he threw this desk at me and sort of stormed out and I thought, oh, there's something going on there. Ran after him, his relationship had broke down, he was devastated about that, devastated that he'd spoken to me that way, you know, there was just turmoil but he didn't know how to walk in and be vulnerable. And I think that's incredibly sad because we also know that adolescents, 
the way they behave when they are hurt, the way they behave in relationship um, is foundational and helps shape how they will behave in adult relationship. And because of my work in the area of domestic violence, that's of particular interest to me too. Mm. Tell us about your work in domestic violence. Yeah, Catherine, probably like all of us, I was reading the reports that every week a woman was dying at the hands of her partner and I just found myself feeling this increasing sense of dread and despair and I felt that nothing I was writing in my columns was changing that, that none of the conversations I was having at my in my home were changing that and I really wanted to do something more for my, sounds strange, but almost more for myself because I knew that this was really affecting my um, sense of safety and well-being, and I really had to do something to shift that around. I've written a book on gratitude so I know that actually giving can be very good for the, for the one that gives as well. Um, so I saw in my local newspaper that there was going to be a forum in our community establishing a refuge for women and children fleeing domestic violence. So I went along to that meeting more for the peace of mind, knowing that there were good people in our community who cared, and instantly I was hooked and in. And I joined that board um, as a foundational board member. We established the sanctuary, which is in Castle Hill, and it's been open for three years now. And I think we've had something like 170 women and children come through our doors. And phenomenally, 100% of those women and children have gone in gone on to live independent lives free of violence, which is a really phenomenal statistic. It's usually around 50% across the sector. And that's because we offer those women and children so many wraparound services. So um, looking at things like reskilling them, giving them legal support, psychological support, counselling for their kids. So they really know that they do have options and can move on. But during that first meeting, as they were talking about this refuge, I knew that I was going to help build that, but I also knew that I wanted to close its doors. And Mm. I felt those two things equally as strongly. And so when I volunteered to be on the board of the refuge, I said, look, I want to close us down. So that will be my mission. Um, And I think we need to do that by engaging young people. So I went to the local boys' school, Oak Hill College at Castle Hill, and I spoke to the Year 10 boys there and I asked them if they'd adopt the refuge as their chosen charity and support its work for the year. Um, And they were extremely keen to do that. And the way in which they embraced that was very, very touching. So they did things like make welcome packs for the ladies. And I spoke to the boys, you know, really bluntly and said, if you just go home and ask your mum to buy all of this, that's very sexist. Yeah, um, good and, for you. And, and if you really <laughs> want to step up and be a difference, I want to see you, you know, actioning that. So I was getting, you know, cute little emails from boys asking what kind of tea do women like and <laughs> what sort of chocolates might be appropriate. Oh, yeah, I know. Chocolate, they weren't, yeah. weren't quite sure. <laughs> Teenage boys are probably aren't, you know, really up with the teas that are popular and trendy. But they they made these little welcome packs and they collectively decided that they would handwrite notes that that would have more meaning and they wrote on the note, we're glad you're safe and we have your back, which oh. I thought was just so touching. And the women sometimes would arrive, you know, can you imagine arriving at a refuge, probably the lowest point in your life with just a few little meagre possessions in your hands and finding this beautiful little welcome pack lovingly wrapped by a teenage boy with a little note wishing you well and telling him that he's on your side. Just incredibly powerful and healing. So For um, both. I would have thought. For both. And so because it was so healing for both, Annabelle Daniel, who's the amazing CEO of Women's Community Shelters, asked if I'd roll out an expanded version of that pilot across 
her five refuges that she has in New South Wales. And so that's what I've done this year. And it's called Walk the Talk. Um, And we've worked with two and a half thousand teenagers this year alone from 15 schools who are supporting the work of five refuges. And I'm going to cry again. I'm such an emotional bunny, but only when I'm really happy and really proud of things. Um, I really get, I really cry when I'm sad. So we can suss out, we can get a psychologist (laughs) to call in on that. But, um, but I think it's been amazing because the children, well, they're not children, they're young people, um, have just moved me. I mean, there was a, a, there's a school at South Sydney High School who are supporting their refuge Bayside and the students there don't have a lot of money. It's a pretty tough government school. So they've grown vegetables for mm-hmm. the women and children. Um, they've handmade wooden toys for the kids to play with. They've made candles that they can sell. Now, the candle making... I think you're going to make me cry in a oh, minute. Oh, the candle making, <laughs> Jane. The beautiful maths teacher at this school's mother had passed away and she had experienced violence. And as part of her estate that he inherited, he bought the supplies for the kids to make candles so they could sell those and sort of share that light in his mother's name. I mean, how incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and Things and that so- happen in schools are... Fabulous. Absolutely. Not just with the students, but with the teachers when they connect to a cause that's local. And so, you know, when we look at this big issue, domestic violence, how are we going to solve it? Seems so huge. It starts small, starts local, starts in classrooms. Do you think, Danielle, um, the conversation has at last um, and well overdue had a bit of a sea change though in the last few years and goodness, the work you're doing is amazing. Um, But I just think from Rosie Batty, Ken Lay, the Victorian Police Commissioner, who told me about trying to, you know, say to his policeman, you know, that we've got to talk about this in a completely different way. Mm. This is not about, you know, not going in there because that was kind of the the underlying Mm. feeling, you know, that's something that happens at home and we're not involved. Man's Uh, home is his castle. That's right. And I think, uh, as I say, a lot further to go but a bit of a switch around. We we don't do as much victim blaming, for example, or at least when anything is written in the media that has a hint of that, there's a very loud outcry now. Sadly, the statistics show that that hasn't necessarily filtered through to high school students yet. Mm. There are still entrenched beliefs that um, sometimes girls can aggravate boys and therefore it's appropriate for them to lose their temper. There are still very much entrenched beliefs around masculinity and femininity sometimes, but they do quickly unravel. And I think the, the key to walk the talk success is there is that phase one education where we go in and talk to the kids for a day to make sure that we're all on the same page and we're all talking the same language, because I think that's really important. You can't be upset with kids if they don't understand the nuances of an issue if you haven't yet explained those nuances. Mm. And there are nuances to this issue. But the key is really phase two, which is the practical application. So if you say you mat- this mattered, you say this day was powerful, you know, we've all hugged, we've all cried, we've all said yes, we've all fist pumped in the air, then let's action that. No more tokenistic, you know, badges, no more. Let's do something and let's do something that supports frontline services that are in your community because they are needed in your community. And that's huge. The kids often do still think, this is a very sad issue, but it's probably happening somewhere else. Mm. Yeah. Yep. They're really shocked that it's happening in their town. In their own. Yeah. But you take on an awful lot of issues because yeah. you've also won an award about uh, suicide prevention yes. from your uh, from your writing about yes. this in the media. And also you've taken on a project about the state of toilets. I know. <laughs> 
I have. The school toilet project. Look, the school toilet project is one of those funny little ones, Jane, that um, probably has my most successful endeavour yet, and yet I haven't monetized it in any way. So that was really very foolish of me. I know. It's just a complete labour of love and a passion project. Again, when I'm really moved by things, I think I have learnt in my life that the best way to move myself forward is to do something. I'm very much a woman of action. So I was reading a newspaper article about a um, 12-year-old boy in the US who had gone to school and um, killed himself in the school toilets. And I just remember, you know, I just sat there and thought that poor little thing. I mean, he must have just been so full of confusion and anger and so scared and I pictured what it must have been like for him being in the school toilets. And I've been a teacher in many schools and, I, you know, squats are usually filthy. They I are. mean, they're mm. just horrible literally places. covered in mm. shit, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Stink. I just thought if ever you were going to be full of despair and go somewhere to try and sort of take a moment, that would be the last place that would inspire you to move beyond. And then I thought about the fact that when I was in a student welfare role, my office was covered in posters about the kids' helpline and it was beautiful and we had incense and, you know, we had cushions and candles and there's nothing where kids naturally go when they're upset, which is the school toilets. Mm. It's pri- um, the only private space in a school right? often. and so yeah. they go. Every time you walk in as a teacher, there's some kid mm. crying. That's mm. just a given. Um, uh, every time you walk into the ladies in any large corporation, I think there's right. some woman Same crying thing. in them. That's where the well. emergency meetings yeah. of the That's women's right. network yeah. take place. And so mm. I just sort of thought, you know, why is it that we've all accepted that our school toilets are gross mm. and we've never thought that that's not really cool. And when I go... Dr John, you used to be quite strong on this many years ago, who used to head up the Camperdown Children's Hospital. Look, there's a whole... And then I did some research. Mm. I actually completed a 10,000-word research project with some help from an amazing researcher. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting is that there's so much research that shows school toilets are the black hole for mental and physical health. There are a lot of young people in experiencing incontinence because they hold on all day. There's been a lot of research that shows bullying actually may have some, um, some of the contributing factors might be kids who are just bloody holding on and cranky about that or who are experiencing tummy toilet stress and tummy pains. Kids don't drink water because they don't that, that affects their learning. And I'm, the more I dug into this, the more I thought, what, what, why have we not looked at this? Why did I not look at this when I was back in a school? Because I hadn't thought of it before. It just sort of came to me like a lightning bolt. So I decided to do something about it, um, set up a page that really was just designed to inspire schools to action this. So I put up some key research. I had an amazing interior designer, Alexander Kidd, who's one of the most um, successful interior designers in Sydney. Can you imagine that phone call, me ringing up a posh interior designer, going, <laughs> would you please, you know, film with me a little segment to teach children about the interior design concepts? But she agreed. She said, this makes perfect sense. I love it. Um Everyone I've spoken to about this idea actually has said that. This makes sense. I love it. Um, and so I put We've all of that up online. We've all cried in a school toilet. Yep. <laughs> I put it all up online. Um, I did surveys that schools could download and use with their students to get their head around what the state of play was now. And it just took off. It's just taken off. I've had so much media on it. There's over a 1,000 teachers now and parents from schools who have... Um, who are in the process of revamping their school toilets. I've had some really big corporates, which is really exciting, 
call me and suggest that they would like to sponsor this in school. So I'm still ironing out how that might look. The McDonald's toilet. <laughs> no, 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 not like that, actually. Well, in one end and out the other, No, nothing, nothing like, no sponsorship <laughs> thing. More like they want to donate paint. They want to donate services because they can see this I'll, makes I sense. I was being cheeky. But no, yes, I know you're being cheeky. <laughs> and I just love that there is now this sense of ownership from, I mean, a school like Ascom just recently completed their school toilets and the girls decided that they wanted each cubicle to represent um, a strong, inspiring woman and they oh. they have quotes <laughs> about about that and they've done all sorts of design concepts. I but wonder it, how wanted or otherwise you might feel. <laughs> Look, I think it's all I great. I think that's hilarious. I love it. I love it. And I, what I love is that it's up to, uh, hopefully it will be up to the students to think yeah. about what would you like, what makes you feel safe, comfortable and inspired in those spaces and boys too. Yeah. And kids yeah. are much more creative than us, so leave it to the kids, I say. No, I think that's wonderful. I can't let you go, though, without asking you about the world's most famous teenage girl at the moment, who is Greta Thunberg, and the incredible reaction to her. It takes us back to where we really started mm. this interview about, you know, what? why have we got such a negative response to teenage girls, and particularly a teenage girl who steps out of her place? I know, and we've always found that very shocking. She isn't the first teenage girl to start a revolution. Look at, you know, Joan of Arc, mm-hmm. and we've had, um, I've forgotten their names off the top of my head, but there's been a whole stream of them that I've actually Malala been posting Yusufa, about. Yes, of yep, course. Yep. Um, and, and Look, I think it is really interesting, but it's not surprising that she's experienced such a strong backlash because in many ways she does not conform um, to our vision of what a revolutionary might look like. She is female, she is young, um, and she is unapologetically herself. Mm. Um, And we're not used to that either. But what I find really interesting about the backlash towards her is not just the angry white middle-aged men who want to condemn her because they've always condemned girls and women, so that doesn't really shock me. I have also found some of the um, praise directed towards her has actually been backhanded insults towards teenage girls in general. So I hear a lot of people saying things like, she's not like other girls, she doesn't take selfies, she doesn't wear makeup. We have to be really careful that we don't demonise the interests of some girls. Girls can be interested in selfies and makeup and still be interested in changing the world. Mm-hmm. We can be vast and contain multitudes. And I think that's something to be really cautious about, that when we talk about empowering teenage girls, it isn't about channelling them into our vision of what that might look like. They can still watch The Bachelor if they want to and be revolutionaries. They can still have... Diverse interests and the whole selfies thing is fascinating within itself. I mean, we've always been fascinated by the female form, but heaven forbid they'd be fascinated in their own. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I'm so glad you say that about the way our praise often reveals internalised misogyny yeah. as well. Because it has always struck me that one of the phrases I dislike the most is strong woman mm. because people will say things to me, to you, I'm sure, and to Catherine I know, oh, but you're a strong woman. Mm. What that implies is you're unusual. Mm. You're a woman <laughs> with strength. Most of those others are weakies. You know, they're all weak <laughs> because you literally never hear a man called a strong man unless he actually works for the circus. <laughs> Otherwise, we just assume that men are strong. So we have to really watch that yeah. our praise is not, in fact, continuing to oppress 
yeah. by actually putting down, as you say, all the other teenage girls that aren't Greta Thunberg. And there are lots of ways of exhibiting strength as a female. I mean, the strongest woman um, I've had the great privilege of knowing and loving was my grandmother. And she didn't have a career um, and she wasn't particularly um, assertive, but she was incredibly wise and incredibly bright, actually. Whenever we'd play Sale of the Century around the lounge room, you know, of a night, she would always win. And I was always look at her and think, wow, she's so intelligent. What a shame she didn't have an opportunity. What a waste. To, to, to put that to more use. But what she did do was channel all of that into us, I think, into mm. her grandchildren and her granddaughters in particular. And so there are lots of ways of demonstrating strength. And I think there are lots of girls from various cultures and backgrounds doing incredible work. What an enormous contribution you make, Danielle. It's so um, uplifting to hear about (laughs) the work that you're doing. Um, And also, I think, gives us such a lovely focus because um, we've often in these conversations obviously talked about sort of women, you know, slightly older women, but lovely to talk about and hear sort of the rich experiences you're having and the support you're offering uh, to young girls. Thank you. And I think, you know, talk to teenage girls. They're amazing. They're delightful. They're funny. They're honest. People dismiss the fact they're so woke and say that like it's a bad thing. I love how woke they are. Absolutely. I, I love that they have a heightened sense and a heightened, you know, radar for injustice. And if we can just channel all of that passion, they will light up a city. Yeah. <laughs> they're, and, they're, and the other thing I find, particularly when I go to writers' festivals with young adult novels, is how smart they are. Oh, yeah. How uh, brilliant they are at analysing things and asking the kind of questions that really sit you back and make you think, oh, my God, I never thought about it that way. And we ignore that um, resource at our peril. And that's why I think Greta Thunberg is so incredibly powerful in both a positive and a negative way. She reminds us mm-hmm. of this group of people who we don't listen to enough. Yeah, and we need to mm-hmm. because they have plenty to say and they have a lot of love to give and they're very funny, so we forget that. It's, and I've got the best job in the world. I Teenage love Teenage girls rock. They really do. I love hugging <laughs> them. I love, you know, oh, they send me so many beautiful messages. Six daughters between us. That, that'll, that's right. We that, do. It's a bit of personal experience there. And don't you hate the fact that people always say to you, oh, you've got daughters, and they sort of roll yes. their eyes. Oh, get stuffed. I mean, my daughter is just my favourite human, and that's what I call That's my nickname for her, yeah, my favourite yeah. human. She, and my son's my favourite person, so I'm not, you know, oh, I, was I try and be very diplomatic. But she's an amazing young woman people and always has been. so rude about having girls, and... Because you have three girls and I have two. You're the only yeah. one here with a son. And I always used to get people to say, oh, you know, my son is so different from my daughter. And I say, yes, my younger daughter is very different from my older daughter. That's it. It's funny that, isn't yeah. it? Human beings. Human beings. Exactly. Complex. Exactly. Uh, just because they're the same gender doesn't mean they're, you know, identical people. No. We love to think that's true. <laughs> We've got to stop talking now. No. We're going on no, too long. But girls definitely rock. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, Danielle. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts. 